Professor Baker, last week we spoke about your early life and your career up to the point where you'd been a university lecturer at Cambridge between 1973 and 1983. Today, can we continue from the stage where you were appointed reader in English law in 1983? You were 39 years old, and I wondered what the circumstances of your appointment to the readership were. Well, I don't really know, because in those days you didn't apply for readerships and professorships as you now do. They just come at you out of the blue. And um, All I remember was I was at the Huntington Library in California, and in my little pigeonhole one day there was a letter from England, which I didn't often get, and I opened it and was absolutely flabbergasted to say I'd been offered a readership. Um, that's it. Now somebody must have compiled a case and put it forward. Uh, at that point, the accommodation was still in the old schools. Um, was it at that point becoming quite crowded? It was very crowded and we had lectures on other sites as well. I can't remember exactly when, but we had some lectures in the Mill Lane lecture rooms. And latterly, I think, in Lady Mitchell Hall as well, so it was all over Cambridge. And, uh, in fact, a very strong case was made by Professor Milsom when he was chairman, I think, at the end of the 1980s, or maybe, yes, um, setting out the grievances of the faculty and how it was absolutely impossible to continue as we were. And uh, it was that paper, I think, which led on to eventually a new building, which we'll come on to in due course. Uh, was there a change in your duties and your responsibilities? Not significantly. I think there was a limit on how much supervision one was supposed to do, but in practice you have to do what's necessary. And I, th I think I did cut down slightly, but not significantly. I'm still director of studies. Uh, lecturing duties are the same. Uh, you were <clears throat> given an LLD in 1984, and I wondered to what this honour was owed. Well, that you do apply for, and I thought having just got a readership, somebody must have read all this stuff and so that they can write a report to LD and it won't cause anybody any extra work. I might as well put in for it. So you just put in a box full of your books and then some poor soul has to examine it. And um, in 1984 you were made a Fellow of the British Academy, and I wondered what the citation for this was. Well, no idea. It's, it's like readership. Um, you, you don't know who's put you up or why. Um, I suspect it was the legal historians, obviously. And in this position you were on the Publications Committee from 1989 to 92, and you were on the Council, um, and you were Chairman of the Law Section from 95 to 98. Are there any outstanding memories of your time and your services? No, I think it was all routine work as far as I remember. You received in 1985 the Ames Prize from Harvard. Any significance of this? Well, it's a prize for legal history, which is given, I think, every three or four years. So I felt very honoured to get that, and it, that was expressly awarded for my introduction to Skullman's reports, which had been the York Prize, so I got two prizes out of that in the end. And they flew me over to Harvard to receive it. There's a very nice big medal comes with it, so that was very agreeable. Very nice. And fairly early on in your career as well. Yes. You visited Yale in 1987, and I wondered what the circumstances of that were. 
Well, I think that the Dean, Guido Calabresi, who'd been here, asked me if I'd like to do it. I'm not quite sure who suggested it to him, because he wouldn't otherwise have thought of it, but um, somebody must have suggested it, and so I just went for a few weeks at the end of the summer before the Michaelmas term began. And then at NYU, the two legal historians there, John Reed and Bill Nelson, got to hear that I was doing this at Yale. And because they'd had Toby Milson going to them earlier on, they thought, ah, we, we can get John Baker to come and carry on doing that. So they asked me if I'd go to New York the next year. Oh. And that started off a long association with New York University. Which lasted for the next 22 years. And I wondered what the nature of this long-term work was. I used to go for six or seven weeks and teach a course, and by doubling up the lectures I could teach a, a proper course which would be examined at the end of it. And um, one would usually get... Well, when I started I used to get quite large audiences of about 50, but then they decided to have a global law school. I think I was a sort of pre-global law school as a one-man show, and then when they had lots of other people offering these same sorts of courses, then obviously there were fewer students, so it went down. I don't think it was because of my lectures having deteriorated, it's just that there was more offer. So we would end up perhaps with 6 to 12, something like that, in the end. Um, I noticed that there is, there is a legal history colloquium in September, and I wondered whether you contributed to this during your visits. Yes, I usually spoke uh, each year to that, and I used to go to it, of course, it was run by Bill Nelson. Uh, in 1988, you were an honorary bencher of the Inner Temple. Any particular circumstances or what this entailed? I think my main connection with the Inn at that point was that I'd been helping with the archives, which were in a terrible state. Some had been put into basements during the Blitz, and others were completely unsorted. And I helped to sort them out. And I gather from what was said to me that they were waiting for me to become a professor because they thought honorary benches had at least to be professors and then they jumped in and uh, elected me. Oh, that's very interesting because that of course is the year when you became a professor of English legal history. Yes. But before we move to that, during your time as a reader you had a prodigious output. You produced seven books which is to more than one a year. 15 book chapters and 24 articles, and I wondered to what you attributed your success, Professor Baker. Well, I don't know about success, I just went on doing it because I found it interesting. They weren't, I think, monographs, any of them, they were different sorts of books, mostly for the Selden Society. I think there was an edition of Port's Notebook, which was the manuscript I'd gone to look at at the Huntington, which we mentioned last time. I wrote a book on sergeants at law which came out of my PhD thesis and then I published a list of legal manuscripts in the States which came out of my year when I was there, just a short list. And then I, I did a source book with Professor Milson. We both had the same idea at the same moment and um, that came out in 1987. So, when so in 1987 I acquired a computer for the first time, and of course that transformed my research and work after that. 
Professor Milson had his before I did, and I thought if he has one, I should have one. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. So you were 44 years old when you were made Professor of English Legal History in 1988, and that is relatively young. Um, this was a personal chair, and I wondered how that came about. Well, again, you don't know in those days. In fact, I remember that once we had a chair vacant and somebody applied for it, and that was felt more or less to rule him out. We didn't want the sort of person who would apply for a chair. <laughs> so it came out of the blue, and I was even more surprised than I was by the readership. And because in those days, ad hominem professorships were really quite rare. I think I was only about the fourth or fifth in the history of the faculty. Yes. That was two years before Professor Milson retired. Do you think there was any, perhaps, connection? Well, there, there may have been. Of course, I would have gone on doing the same teaching anyway, so it didn't really make much difference, but it may have been in people's minds. Uh, did this... Uh, professor should perfect your, the duties that you had had hitherto? Not greatly. I mean, as with the readership, um, one does the same lecturing stint, more or less. But as far as the college is concerned, there was a limit on the amount of supervisions that you're officially allowed to do. Not long before then, professors were absolutely forbidden to do any college teaching. They couldn't supervise. But that had been relaxed and I think it was four or six hours a week that one was supposed to stick to and I think by and large I did and I gave up being director of studies fairly soon after that, not immediately. But it was only made possible by our taking on more law fellows at St Catherine's. I see. Eilish Ferron for instance. So I didn't have to do it all myself. Yes. Uh, during this time you were chairman from 1990 to 92, and you would have been involved in the planning for the move to the Sidgwick site. And I wondered whether you have any memories or recollections of this rather trying time. Yeah, well, one could hardly forget it, no. I mean, it was quite a hard time to be chairman of the faculty, although it was spread over several chairmanships. As I said, I think the impetus first came when Professor Milson was chairman, um, who persuaded the general board that things just couldn't go on as they were, and then that was agreed. And during Len Seeley's term as chairman, the decision was made to commission Foster and Partners to produce a plan. There had been a competition, and um, I think it's fair to say that the general view in the law faculty was not in favour of Foster's. They would have preferred something rather more conventional. But the decision was not made by the faculty, it was made by the General Board's building committee. Uh, and I think Gareth Jones was serving on that, and he was very influential in um, ensuring that Fosters were appointed. So that was a fait accompli when I took over. And then I had to work for two years with Foster and Partners on, on the plans. And what was difficult was that we still had the final decision to make as to whether the plans, when produced, would meet our needs. So we could have pulled the plug. And that was the crunch decision that had to be made while I was chairman. And it was quite controversial. Some people didn't like it at all. And I decided that it was such a big decision that it couldn't be taken by the faculty board. It had to be the whole faculty. 
and I knew of no precedent for this, but I made the whole faculty meet, and we had a presentation by Foster's, and then we took a ballot. And um, although there was quite a significant dissenting voice, it was nevertheless a clear majority, because it was quite clear, and I told them, that if we say no, which we're entitled to, then the university will effectively wash its hands of us for the next 10 or 20 years, and we won't get an alternative building. So it's, it's this or nothing. And I think most members of the faculty thought, well, anything will be better than what we're putting up with at the moment. But um, it was a difficult time, certainly, and, yes. and also quite difficult to work out what are your minimum requirements. And some members of the faculty would have liked to have offices for everybody, but that was just impossible, uh, given the space available. And I was worried that if we did provide a little cubbyhole for everyone, then colleges would say, oh, you've got a room in the faculty, you don't need a room in college. And most of us were far better off with our college rooms than we would have been with faculty rooms. So there were lots of decisions of that sort that had to be made by a committee yes. as the work progressed. Uh, whether the offices should be open plan or not was another big issue. Interesting. Um, any other sort of concerns that were voiced by those with the dissenting vote? Well, I think there was a spiritual attachment to the old building, and I think a lot of people didn't want to give that up, and it was a wrench to leave that. But on obviously on the other side, you could see that we would have more space and the books could be set out rather more logically in straight lines. <laughs> it's easier to find things. Did you uh, meet the architect, uh, Sir Norman Foster? Yes, he came up once or twice. So most of our dealings were with his second-in-command, but he came up to meet the faculty and speak to the faculty. He was a rather arrogant person and didn't, didn't listen to us at all. And I was particularly worried about the noise problem because they designed this open building in which there was nothing between people pouring out of lectures in the basement and the library. And I said, this is going to be noisy, bound to be. And he more or less went puce and said, what on earth do you know about it? I'm a great architect. And of course I was right. And the great architect was wrong. And uh, we had to put a glass screen in, which is what I'd asked for. And he said, you won't need it. So my dealings with Sir Norman Foster, as he then was, um, were not happy. Do you like the, the new quarters, Professor Baker? <laughs> not greatly, no. I don't um, like to come here too much. I, the Maitland room is very nice. That's a one plus. Uh, that really is very agreeable. And um, perhaps even nicer than the old room three, where we used to keep the legal history books in the Cockerell building. And of course, I appreciate all the facilities, and we can do all sorts of things that we couldn't do before. And that, that is wonderful. I just don't have a sense of uplift when I come here. No. As uh, certainly um, Professor Lipstein never got used to the building, uh, greatly missed the... There's something wrong with the air quality as well, so whenever I've been here for more than an hour, I desperately need a glass of water, and it's very dry. Yes. We weren't allowed to have air conditioning because it was too expensive. Um, we weren't allowed to have openable windows because they were too old-fashioned. Um, the actual move must have been very difficult. I mean, do you have any memories of that particular process? 
Well, that took place, that, that was in the next chairmanship of John Tiley. He did the gunboot stage. And um, the actual building. And then the opening took place during John Spencer's chairmanship, and he received the Queen. It's a grand occasion. But I didn't really have anything much to do with that. I may have been still on the committee, but that's not my responsibility. No. Um, Professor Baker, still during this time when you were Professor of English Legal History, you had overseas trips, you continued your association with New York. Yes. You also went to Chicago um, and you were given an honorary LLD. Did you actually go to Chicago to receive this award? Yes, I did, and I was very touched. It's the only honorary degree I've got, and uh, it was very, very nice of them. In '93, you were given another award by the American Society of Legal History. You were a visiting fellow, and um, I wondered what the circumstances of this was were. I'm afraid, I, I can't remember. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> I've been a member of the Society. Uh, for quite a long time and, and got their journal, but I don't quite know what the visiting fellow was. I never visited them because the meetings were always in term time and I couldn't get to them. Uh, in 1995 you were at All Souls in Oxford and I wondered was this just a sabbatical or did you have a specific programme of research? Yes, it was a sabbatical, and I had a specific programme which was to try and make a start on the Oxford History of the Laws of England, and it seemed an appropriate place to start it. And I wrote a, almost half of it while I was there. It was a wonderful place to be, you just get on with one's scholarship yes. and be given nice food and drink every night if one wished it, <laughs> and, and very good company. Two further awards during this period, in 1996 you were an honorary QC, and in 97 an honorary fellow for the Society for Advanced Legal Studies. Any memories or...? Well, I was really very honoured to become a silk, um, having always thought of myself in earlier days as a barrister-in-waiting, even though it wasn't uh, a real Practicing silk, it was nevertheless a distinct honour, and I was very delighted to be able to go up to the House of Lords and get sworn in in my buckled shoes and full bottom wig. During this time, you actually completed uh, seven books, 14 book chapters, and five articles. And I wondered whether your, the opportunity for research increased when you had this position. So again, it was a very productive period. I don't think the opportunities were any better, no. In fact, one was expected to do rather more in the way of running the faculty and so forth. But I just kept doing what I've always done. And, and once again, a lot of those books were editions. And editing text, although it's quite difficult is something that you can pick up and put down, whereas writing a monograph is something where you've really got to sit down with a wet towel around your head and work it all out without distraction, and that's much more difficult to do. Yes. Well, in 1998, you took the Downing Professorship, you were awarded the Downing Professorship, and this chair was founded in 1800 as a bequest of Lord Downing, and I wondered whether there are any specific qualifications linked to the chair or can cover any area of law? 
they can cover any area, yes indeed. Of course, one of the greatest holders was Maitland, who was the founding father of legal history. But um, it didn't have to be a legal historian. In fact, it usually wasn't. So I, you know, I was very grateful to be considered for that. Any recollections or comments regarding the circumstances of your succession to Professor Gareth Jones? Yes, well, there was quite a prestigious chair at Oxford vacant at that moment, and I was being put under some pressure to accept it. And while I was dithering, a member of the electoral board to the Downing chair asked me if I would c consider being the Downing professor, or was I going to go to Oxford? <laughs> and I said, well, I'd much rather stay here and be Downing professor, and so, so it happened. It's very interesting. <clears throat> Any special duties attached to this position? No, not now. I mean, uh, under the original foundation, the Downing professor was, I think, ex officio vice-master of Downing and had his own lodge. It was all very splendid. But that came to an end with Hazeltine in the 1940s, who not only became non-resident because he was American, extraordinary appointment, Hazeltine. He never wrote anything. Um, and when the war broke out, he decided it would be safer in Boston, so he went back to the States and, by all accounts, spent the rest of his life watching movies. <laughs> um, but what had really annoyed Downing was that he let half the lodge to another colleague, and that was thought to be rather disreputable. So they changed the statutes, and uh, the Downing professor no longer has any real connection with Downing, except perhaps dining rights. Did your teaching duties remain much the same? Yes. In 2001, you were made an honorary foreign member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Did you go to the United States to receive this honour? Uh, yes, I did. It's the equivalent of the British Academy and the Royal Society rolled into one. And uh, it was quite an honour because there were only five or six British members in the law section. In 2003, you were knighted, Professor Baker, and this was, you went, presumably went down to London, and I wondered if you could tell us about this wonderful occasion. Yes, well, it was the same as for everybody else. The first you know about it is you get a letter from 10 Downing Street asking if you'd be willing to have your name put forward to the Queen, and, and they enclose a form for you to tick yes or no. <laughs> And they say, you won't hear anything else until it's announced on the day. So you send this form back with a tick. Usually, I suppose, some people say no, but not many. And then you just spend several months wondering if they've received <laughs> the reply or not. And then you buy the newspaper on the day. It was the Queen's birthday. And I remember I was in London, and I bought the newspaper and opened it, and sure enough, there I was. So, uh, but the actual event is, is wonderful, of course, for anybody who goes to an investiture, whether it's a, an MBE or a knighthood, it's a very splendid occasion. And I was able to take my parents shortly before my mother died, and I'm very pleased that they were able to see it. It does sound a wonderful occasion. Professor Baker, in 2008, you were given a gold medal by the Irish Society of Legal History, and I wondered why you were given this award. Well, just for services to legal history, I suppose. I didn't have any very strong connections with Ireland. I'd given 
the odd paper relating to Ireland, and I used to pub in fact my very first paper was published in the Irish Jurist, but that was more because it was a useful outlet for me than that I wanted to benefit Irish scholarship. But anyway, um, it's a learned society devoted to legal history, and it was very generous of them to honour me in that way. I did read um, a very interesting piece, uh, a lecture that you gave to the to Galway University in 2006, where you were critical of undergraduate teaching in English universities, and perhaps we can come back to that when we talk about your scholarly work. Uh, this 13-year period in the Downing Chair was your most productive in what has been a particularly creative and productive career. Ten books, 23 book chapters and 44 articles. And I wondered if you could sum up this period of your career in terms of the opportunities that it presented. Well, it was just business as usual, really. I think it may be slightly more items because it was a slightly longer period, <laughs> as you mentioned. But I don't think there was any particular change. I just went on doing what I've always done. And, of course, many of the things that you write are long-term projects and they come to fruition rather by chance at certain moments, which are not actually when you did most of the work. So it's maybe I was better at finishing things off. Well, in 2002, you were the Lady Margaret's Preacher, which is the oldest teaching post in the university, and I wondered what this entailed. It was one of the most bizarre appointments I've ever received. Not having any religious beliefs, I was pleasantly surprised to be invited to deliver a sermon. And the, the only duty now has been whittled down from, from a lectureship to giving the commemoration sermon in Great St Mary's on Commemoration Day. And so I said I would do it, and nothing like a challenge. And of course I took a lawyer's approach to it, and since I thought it was rather strange that I was being asked to give this lecture, which would have horrified the Lady Margaret, I spoke about perpetuities and donors' intentions and how proper it was for people to expect their wishes to be carried out for hundreds of years. So I tied it in with the absurdity of my own position. <laughs> <laughs> you retired in 2011 from the Downing Chair and we should perhaps say nominally retired because you've been extremely busy. Uh, did you have to retire? Professor Baker, I mean, is it, is it mandatory? Yes, it is. It's probably illegal, but I actually voted in favour of it because I think we ought to get out and make way for the next generation, really. I've seen what problems it causes in the States to have people staying on. And these um, geriatrics who don't do anything occupying all the best rooms and costing a lot of money. And I just don't think that's right, really. And I think it's better than having a awkward conversation with the chairman of the faculty at some point saying, you know, we're now getting so many complaints, John, that we think you ought to step down. <laughs> Better just to go when the appointed time comes. <clears throat> Plenty else to do. You, in 2013, were awarded the Sutherland Prize. This was from American Society for Legal History. Any recollections of this? Well, that was for the article I wrote for a festschrift to my old friend Paul Brand who was a specialist in the 13th century, and I haven't really done much on the 13th century, but I did used to lecture on problems about the history of the action of covenant in the 13th century, which had never really been resolved, and I thought I'd just 
really reworked my lectures for that and, and put that in, and it seems to have appealed to somebody, and they very kindly gave me a prize. I was flabbergasted. I've never won a prize for a very long time, but there we are. <laughs> Did you go to the States to receive it? No, that was not necessary, no. Um, I know that, obviously, your scholarly work continues, and I had the great pleasure of hearing you give a talk at a library conference last year in Oxford. Are you considering new projects, Professor Baker, or are you simply completing long-term ones? I think at my age it would be rather rash to start anything new of a major kind. Of course, one's always being asked to give papers, but usually, if possible, one tries to make use of material one has already gathered. So I will be largely finishing things off, I think, and editing. At the moment, I'm editing Cook's Notebooks, my first discovery years ago, and I used to say then, perhaps I'll edit it when I retire. Not thinking I would, but it seems to be that's what I'm doing. Your output in your retirement, again, has been remarkable. Four books to date, 13 book chapters, and 21 articles. Presumably you don't require funding for your research, Professor Baker? No, never had funding. I regard my pension as being rather like a research fellowship without limit of tenure, and that supports me doing what I need to do as long as I can afford to go to libraries and buy paper and yes. keep my computer going. Yes. I was wondering where you felt you worked best in retirement, particularly at home or in your college. I know it's not here in the faculty, from what you've just No, told it, it isn't, indeed. Um, I don't have my college rooms anymore, but... Um, for most of my career, from, I suppose, 1971 until 2011, I did all my work in my college rooms. And I was very lucky from 1975 until retirement to have a rather nice little set of rooms up in the roof called Sky Hall. And I did nearly all my work there. Occasionally did some at home, but not all that much. Tended to pursue hobbies at home. Um, but then... I had to get out of my rooms when I retired, and quite rightly too. I dreaded it for years. I thought, what on earth am I going to do with all my books? I had an enormous number of books in Sky Hall, so much so they were worried about the ceiling below. But uh, my wife very sensibly said, why don't you just build a library in the garden? <laughs> and my previous study was a rather nice uh, room facing the garden, and she said, that would make a lovely kitchen. So... We did a deal and she got a nice kitchen, or we both got a nice kitchen out of it, and I got a wonderful new library, and I got all 90 metres of books from Sky Hall into it, just with compact shelving. So I'm now very happy working there. Sounds wonderful. Mm -hmm. Do you still play a role in the faculty, Professor Baker, in an advisory capacity? No, no. That brings us now to um, a section which is no longer chronological um, and it concerns your relationship with particular institutions because you've played such an active role in so many institutions, bodies and boards and engaged in a variety of activities that I thought it might be interesting if we could draw these out and talk specifically about some of them, the more important ones, and you might perhaps feel moved to say something about the bodies themselves, 
And I wonder if we could start with the Selden Society. You've had a long and distinguished association with the Selden Society, and you, your publishing record was particularly strong with them during the period when you were professor from 88 to 98. I wondered when you joined and what the circumstances were of that. Well, as far as I can remember, I joined more or less as soon as I took up an academic position because it was the sort of thing you have to do if you're a legal historian. And it's very inexpensive, marvellous value, I can give it a plug. It still is. So it would have been in the mid-60s. Can you tell us a bit about the Selden Society and what it does for legal history? Yes, it was founded in 1887 to publish works relating to English legal history, usually one a year, an annual volume a year, which members get for a subscription. And then we also publish supplementary volumes from time to time, which are charged for more or less at cost price. And that's it, really. We don't organise conferences or anything of that sort, because there are other ways of doing that which we may come on to. But it is a publishing society and serves a very important function for producing texts of material which wouldn't otherwise be available in print. We haven't, on the whole, produced editions of things that are already in print. Uh, just occasionally it's been valuable to do that where comparison of texts has been required. But uh, with printed books one can just reproduce them photographically nowadays. There's no need to edit them. But we edit law reports and lectures in the Inns of Court and that kind of thing, which is very difficult to use in manuscript form. One can, of course, and we have to, but it's so much easier to use when there's apparatus, indexes and so forth. Well, you've been on the council since 1973, and I wondered if you could recall any significant developments over the intervening 40 or so years. Not really. It's been a, a steady story of success. We've gone on producing the odd volume a year. And um, perhaps one of the nicest developments has been a very recent one, that we managed to save up enough capital, because we have such a large membership, that we're able to fund a scholar at university, the first of the Selden Society scholars is in fact Cambridge at the moment doing a PhD and we've just renamed it the Milsom Scholarship. You were the literary director of the Selden Society and you held this position jointly from 81 to 90 with David Yale and then solely from 90 to 2011. I wondered if you could outline the circumstances of this. Yes, well, that's an accurate statement. David Yale and I did it jointly for a while. He had, I think, been doing it jointly with Toby Milsom. I can't quite remember what the position was before 81. But anyway, we did it jointly for about 10 years. And then I took it on, on my own. And I think I served a longer term than any other literary director. But that's partly because it tied in very closely with my own work. And... Uh, Whenever we were short of a volume, I just produced one myself. <laughs> Made life a lot easier than chasing other people. It, it is actually very difficult to get work done for the Solon Society because we don't pay editors. And all our editors have other jobs and other priorities. 
And so although we have some very good ideas put to us, it's sometimes a very long wait before volume actually appears. There's one famous volume that took over a hundred years, and by the time it finally came out, the, the texts that were edited were completely different from the text which had first been proposed, but it was organically still the same project. <laughs> and that's a rather bad example, but some certainly take ten years quite normally. Any memories of David Yale? I remember Mr. Pritchard spoke of him at some length because they were obviously had a project, a long-running project. Yes, the Admiralty project. Yes. yes. Well, David was a, a colleague for, for many years. I'm rather sad that he now lives in Wales and I don't see so much of him because we got on very well and um, it was a good partnership in, in the Selden Society and indeed we also taught the LLM course together over the years, um, and I have pleasant memories of those days. Yes. <clears throat> uh, Professor Baker, are there any memorable occasions that stand out for you? As I recall Professor Milson recounting the centenary celebrations in 87, when uh, the Duke of Edinburgh attended and conversed very well with the American visitors. Uh, do you have any memories of your time? Well, that was the only memorable occasion. We have a memorable occasion every hundred years in the Celtic Society, so I shan't see the next one. Uh, there have been the odd memorable hiccups, like um, princes going bust and uh, the secretary of the society having to go and rescue all the volumes quickly before the sequestrators seized them and so on. But um, we don't organise occasions, so no, we haven't had any others. That brings us to your association with the Inner Temple, which you joined early in your career when you were an assistant lecturer at UCL. You have had this association throughout your career, and I wonder if you could briefly outline how you came to join. Well, I joined long before I was an assistant lecturer. I joined in, in my first year as an undergraduate because you had to eat the dinners in those days. You had to keep 12 terms by eating dinners before you could be called. And my call night was my very last dinner, so I got all 36 in, just in time. And if you didn't start early, then you'd have a wait before you could become a barrister at the other end, which could be very inconvenient. So, because I thought I was going to the bar, I joined the inn straight away. I think I chose the inner temple because the undergraduate who I was sharing digs with in Muzzle Hill was already a member of the Inner Temple and he said I'll take you down there for dinner. And there was also a very senior junior barrister practicing in Chelmsford who my father knew slightly who was a bencher and he said I'll propose your call in due course. But it was only a very loose connection that drew me to the Inner Temple. And it's been quite an important association, really. I, because of my work on the history of the profession, I have a, obviously an interest in the Inns of Court and have always felt close to them for that reason. But it's also a very agreeable society and I've enjoyed being associated with it, especially as a bencher. Any particular facilities that were of use to you in your historical research? Well, it's a very fine library with a lot of manuscripts. What was of greatest use to me when I was an assistant lecturer at UCL was it, there used to be a lot of 17th century books on open shelves. 
And at UCL, we didn't even have a set of yearbooks, which are essential reading for a legal historian. And I could go down to the Inner Temple and just pull them off the shelves. And I used to sit in a little alcove up in the gallery overlooking the gardens and the river, looking at these books. And I can still remember the rather nice smell of decaying yearbooks <laughs> with this beautiful scene outside the window. Very happy days. Unfortunately, they're going to destroy the gallery now, build something else there, but that's progress. Yes. So you've held a wide variety of posts within the Inner Temple and obviously played a very active role for 40 years. Um, has this provided you with lifelong uh, professional contacts, comradeship? Yes, as I say, it's a, it is a very friendly society. I haven't played perhaps as active a role as a full bencher would. I was made an honorary bencher so that I didn't have to go to meetings of the governing body, bench table, which might have been interesting, but it would have been a burden from Cambridge. And so the only positions that I've really held have been in relation to the archives and a brief time in the library and scholarships committee and book prize and that sort of thing, but yes. not, not the day-to-day -day running of the inn. Well, uh, in the course of my up to now brief sortie into your scholarly writings, I've realised that much of what you've written concerns the inns of court, as you just mentioned, and what a vital role they played in the development of the common law. We'll come back to this in the next section but I wonder, before we leave the Inner Temple, whether you have any comments, Professor Baker, on the significance of the Inns of Court to your overall research trajectory. Well, in a way, they're more central than the universities, because the universities in the past, the periods I work in, were largely seminaries for the clergy. And so I regard the Inns of Court as being the home of the common law, and that's where everything I do comes from, really, and I suppose that's why I feel close to them. I should also mention that I've been not quite so closely attached, but also attached to Gray's Inn, because they used to be the only inn to have a historical society, and that's now been rectified, but ages ago, in the 70s, they had a, quite a flourishing historical society, and I used to get asked to go and give talks after dinner, which is not the ideal time to give talks because students tended to stay until the port was exhausted and then they would just leave unashamedly. It wasn't just when I was lecturing. Anyway, I used to give those talks and then they very kindly said, well, would you like to become an Adiundem member without charge? So I became a member of Gray's Inn, barrister of Gray's Inn, and then a few years ago they very kindly elected me as an honorary bencher, so now I've got connection there too. I wondered about that, so that you, you can actually, if you're invited, belong to two. You can as an honorary bencher, not as a governing bencher. Right. Professor Baker, that brings us to your fellowship at St Catherine's. Um, this is a, as you realise, a fairly random list, um, rather than chronological. And you've been a fellow of St Catherine's for over 45 years and obviously seen some changes. And I wonder if any of these stand out for you. Well, of course, when you're living through changes, you don't always notice them. But uh, there have been changes, definitely, yes. Well, 
most obviously the number of fellows. So I think I was number 30 or 32 when I was elected and the master of the day had worked out that that was the maximum number of fellows that the college could ever support on its endowment. And we're now, I think, about 65 on the governing body. And it's become much more cosmopolitan that the fellowship that I joined was, of course, all male, and there were only two men who weren't English, and they were Scottish. Whereas now we have fellows from all over the world speaking all sorts of different languages. It's a completely different fellowship in that sense. And then we admitted women in 1979, obviously made a difference. I was the very last dean of the all-male college. I remember I once had to ask a lady to leave because we had guest hours and you weren't allowed to have women in college after a certain time. And I rather bashfully showed her out and apologised profusely for these rules. And she said to me, I'm so grateful to you. I've been trying to get away from that man all evening. <laughs> so they perhaps had their uses. And then my last job as dean was to assign rooms to the incoming female students. So that was the beginning of a new era. And we also have far more graduate students than those days, because in those days, most of our graduates were simply caps men staying on. Whereas now we have graduates all over the world, and they're a very vibrant and important part of the college community. You've had various positions that you've held um, since you first became a fellow, and some of them have intriguing titles. For example, Keeper of the Muniments. And I wondered if you could tell us what that involved. It just means looking after the college archives and answering any letters that come in with queries, which are mostly genealogical these days. But, of course, I found that great fun, and I just go and read things occasionally and find out what was going on in the college in the past. I still sometimes get asked questions if people want to know the answers to strange historical puzzles. Don't always know, but I know my way around the archives. Custodian of the works of art? That meant looking after the picture collection, having them restored when they needed it and um, deciding where to put them. I, I produced a detailed catalogue, correcting one that had been printed years before. But my main achievement was to start putting pictures in the hall. We had this brutalist 1960s hall put up, in which the architect would have been horrified at the thought that there might be anything human in it, like a portrait. So it was designed to show off his great big iron chandeliers, which we removed, thank goodness, pretty <laughs> soon. And I thought once, well, I'll just try putting at the end of the hall a picture of the founder and, and the principal benefactress, which used to hang in hall, and see what the fellows say. And they all said, how nice to see them again. Could we perhaps have some more? So now we have portraits all around the hall, and it does actually make a difference. You're also director of studies in law? Yes, well, that's normal for a law fellow. I took over from Dick Goodison, who'd been director of studies since 1948 when he came back from India. And then I handed over to Eilish Ferron and others. During the time, Professor Baker, that you were Professor of English Legal History, you were the prior lecturer, and I wondered what that entailed. Well, that's a, a standard college office that every college has. It's a liaison officer, I suppose, between the college and the university. So 
you matriculate students, which makes them members of the university. In the old days, that was a Senate House job, but now it can be done in the college. But you have to watch over them as they sign the book, you know, the pages of the book anyway, which are then sent off to the old schools, and that registers them as members of the university for life. But then the main part of the job is presenting them for degrees at the other end once they've passed their exams. So you have to be able to speak a bit of Latin and know how to marshal people in ranks four, <clears throat> columns of four, I should say. You were president in 2004 to seven and vice master from 2006 to seven during your, t your tenure in the Downing Chair. And I wondered if you had any memories of any highlights these well, the president is, in, in my college, in effect, a deputy master, so if the master can't act for any reason, the president takes over. And one of the main tasks is if a mastership becomes vacant, the president has to preside over the election of the new master. And so that fell to me, and we were very fortunate in persuading Dame Jean Thomas to take on the mastership, and that gave me great pleasure. But she couldn't come straight away, so for a year I had to be the head of house. Um, and we have title vice master. In fact, I, I was the only vice master the college had ever had, because it hasn't been necessary in the past. And it gave me a taste of being a head of house. Which I sometimes have been asked by colleges if I'd be interested in being considered as a head of house, and I always thought, absolutely not, it's not really my thing, and it would require far too much distraction from my work. So it was quite interesting to do it just for a year, and I'm glad I did it, but it confirmed me in my view that it wasn't perhaps the kind of thing I'd want to do long term. Do you still play quite an active part in the college life? Well, not, only in the way that emeritus fellows do. We go into lunch and put the world to rights and we get asked how things used to be done in the past and then they go and do something different. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, you, you give advice occasionally, but no formal role. You've had a long list of editorships in your CV, some of which are active, and you mention editing as something that all legal historians should do as part of their research. This is in your, in your introduction to your Collected Works, Volume 1, 2013. You've also played a very active role in journals and societies, and I wonder whether this is something you look upon as a service to the general scholarly community. You're referring, I think, to two different kinds of editing. When I said that legal historians ought to edit things, I meant that they should themselves produce editions of, of otherwise uh, unpublished texts. We, we can perhaps talk about that later. But I think you're asking here about overseeing and publishing writing by others. And that's something that needs doing. And when you get into a senior position, it's a responsibility to take on these roles. You can't just say, oh, I'm not doing that, I want to get on with my work. Because there are jobs that need doing. And, um, and of course, uh, both the Cambridge Studies in Legal History and the Oxford History of the Laws of England, and even more so the Selden Society, have all published my own work. So I'm particularly grateful to them for that and uh, owe them something in return. It seems to me that in the list that you gave Professor Baker, there are currently 10 that are still active. So it's, it must be... Well, um, quite a few of those 
when you're asked to serve on the committee of a journal, it just means they print your name inside the cover and you don't actually go. I've never been to Australia, for instance, for the Australian Journal of Legal History <laughs> uh, meetings. Some of them, Cambridge Law Journal, was a bit closer to hand, and I, in the past was more actively involved in that. But membership of, of editorial committees usually just means at most a, a meeting a year or maybe two. Not, not very serious work. The main function in practice is to act as a referee in respect of submissions in your own area of expertise. Did you find the switch to electronic publishing challenging? No, not really, no. It, in the case of the Selden Society, which I know best, it made the volumes cheaper, actually. And it means that one can be a bit more generous to editors in letting them change things than we used to. In the old days, you used to have to count every letter when you altered something in a line of movable type and you really didn't want to make major changes, whereas now we can be a little bit more profligate. Um, Professor Baker, most of these positions or editorships started in the 70s and the 80s and other than the sort of change from print to electronic, have there been any changes in types of articles that have been submitted over the years? Well, my concern has really been with the legal history aspects, apart from the Cambridge Law Journal. And so they will obviously reflect changed focus, changed interests in legal history. I don't think there's any particular pattern to it. It's just uh, people move on and do new things. Coming then to Cambridge University bodies, where you've played a very active role within the university, having occupied many positions. For example, you were on the Council of the Senate, the Work and Stipends Committee, Senate House Syndicate, Society Syndicate. Uh, did you volunteer for, for these? or? I think I was pushed onto most of them. Well, the Senate House Syndicate and the Society Syndicate really came as being a proctor. And I stayed on the Senate House Syndicate after being a proctor. The Council of the Senate I was put on to really at the behest of the law faculty in order to see the faculty building went smoothly there. And we had Gareth Jones on the general board, so we were able to keep an eye on things. Yes. Um, the Work and Stipends Committee, I think, was an offshoot of being on the Council of the Senate, probably. The I served on the committee on the... Education Reform Act, and in fact was chairman of it. And that was quite a difficult period because the 1988 Education Reform Act empowered commissioners to go into universities and rewrite all their statutes so that university officers could be made redundant and so forth. And we didn't think that they had nearly enough safeguards built into them and we wanted them to change, but by the time they consulted us, they seemed to have already made their minds up as to what statutes they were going to impose on us. And it was embarrassing because one of the commissioners was David Williams, who was not only the vice-chancellor here, but also a public lawyer. So we have to try to persuade him that these statutes they were proposing were really infringements of civil rights and so forth. But we got some of our way. There's a compromise in the end.
uh, but they, they did impose statutes. Since then, quite a lot of them have been changed by colleges using their powers, so we've been able to get back some way to where we were anyway, so it was all a bit of a waste of effort. But it was quite a, a difficult period, partly because there was the university issue, but it also affected all colleges, and it was even more worrying there. And I had to go to the colleges committee and tell them what we were doing and get permission from all the colleges to represent them all before the um, commissioners. And it's very rare that you can get all the colleges to agree on anything, but we did on this. <laughs> so I was able to represent all the colleges and the university in those meetings. That must have caused you, looking back, a sense of achievement, Professor Baker. Well, there was an awful lot of paperwork and bother, and looking back on it, it was really a waste of time. It would have been much better if it never happened. I don't... I mean, the Education Reform Act, I don't think it achieved anything. Right. But I may be wrong about that. Others will form a better view. And I, a similar sort of role, but not nearly as stressful. I was on the Statutes and Ordinances Revision Syndicate following the WASP uh, report, which was originally chaired by David Yale, and then I took over for him, from him. And that was just a matter of drawing up into legal form the constitutional changes which Sir Douglas Wass had recommended. I wondered about that, actually. Those were the Wass reforms. Yes. And the Septum Veri, I wondered what that body did. Well, the, the Septum Veri is the highest court of appeal in the university, and it, it has two functions. One is to hear appeals from the Court of Discipline, which can try undergraduates and graduate students for disciplinary offences. And it also is a court of first instance for university officers who've been dismissed, which doesn't happen very often, but I did have to chair such a case. It was really rather tricky. But most of its work is appeals from the court of discipline in exam cheating cases, which are not that numerous, but uh, come up from time to time. In, any other challenges that you remember from your involvement in these bodies? I can't recall any, no. One just does all these jobs in the course of a career <laughs> and then obviously there are headaches at the time and then they seem insignificant as years pass. <clears throat> also, Professor Baker, on the Faculty of Law you played a very active role in the administration. You had many positions, you were on the faculty board, the secretary, chairman, you were on the degree committee and Maitland Memorial Fund and I wondered if you could your, tell us about your role in the Maitland Memorial Fund and how this perhaps affected your, your research. It helped me to buy one or two microfilms in the early days which then had to be deposited in the square so it was nothing crucial. The fund was set up in memory of Maitland after he died in 1906, and it's now a substantial sum. A major concern of the managers was to stop the university pinching it, because the old schools, through the malign influence of the charity commissioners, would say that if we weren't spending it, they'd quite like to spend it on something else. And our answer was that we're trying to accumulate it so that we can do something useful with it. 
And I'm glad to say that in my last year or two as secretary, we managed to do that and establish studentships, which is a very good thing. So we sometimes we can manage more than one if if it's a part-funded studentship and somebody gets a bit of funding from somewhere else. So at the moment we've got several people doing PhDs in legal history who are funded either by that or by the Selden Society. And those possibilities weren't there when I started. I had noticed that over the last few years there seemed an increase in PhD research in legal history. Do, do you think it's linked to, this, to the... Well, it obviously it can only account for maybe three or four cases. So there has undoubtedly been an increase as well, and that's partly due to the industry of my colleagues. I've never had very many PhD students myself, and it's not because I'm averse to them. I wanted to have more, but um, people don't want to do it for obvious reasons, as there are no jobs. And uh, I've had some very interesting applications which have been approved, and then the person concerned couldn't get the funding and didn't come. I've also had absolutely superb research students who were really on to something, who decided they couldn't afford to stay, and they went back to America to earn a living there. So it's a bit annoying, and I don't quite know what the trick is. I think David Ibbotson probably knows what the trick is, because he's behind a lot of these <laughs> research students and knows how to manage it. Interesting. Uh, any significant developments during your tenure of the Larapacht Research Centre Committee? I don't recall anything outstanding. Of course, it's an immensely successful research centre, and the idea is that the chairman of the management committee should be somebody completely independent. And They chose me because I knew absolutely nothing about international law and wouldn't interfere with what they were doing. So I just used to go to the meetings and check up on them, as it were, and, and they were doing a grand job, so didn't need any intervention from me. <clears throat> Professor Baker, before we leave this section, um, just casting your eye over the list of your appointments, is there does anything stand out in terms of meriting a comment? No, I think they're mostly routine things that everybody does. I mean, not everyone is secretary and chairman of the faculty, but as Peter Stein told me, I had to be secretary because that was my duty. So. <laughs> and he was the chairman at the time and obviously thought I would able to work with him. Yes. And I became chairman because I could see that it was getting worse and I'd better do it before it got worse. And it turned out to be actually quite a difficult period, but there we are. I think it's basically true that it always gets worse every year, so the sooner you do it, the better. This brings us to your extramural activities. And into earlier, you have been a member of the Cambridgeshire Police Authority from 1980 to 81. And I wondered whether you have any well, there's nothing to do with my father at all. Again, that's an offshoot of the proctorial position because in the old days, the city of Cambridge had its own constabulary and obviously the university was well represented on that, both proctors and I think three university members elected by the Regent House served on the watch committee. And then when it was merged with the county constabulary, which also took in Huntingdonshire eventually, the university retained its representation. It's quite absurd, really. So we had five members of the university on the county police authority. And we used to go to Hinchingbrook and attend meetings. So it was quite interesting. But, um, yes. It just went with the job. So I remember Professor Smith 
was interested. Yes, he was one of the non-Proctor members of the representing the university. Yes, I think they've now reduced the number (laughs) considerably. You were a member and trustee and treasurer of the British Legal History Conference Continuation Committee from 1972. And this began while you were still uh, the Squire Law Librarian. Um, have you continued to, to do this, Professor Baker? Yes, I have a, a role in it, not a very clearly defined role, because although we had a continuation committee, it proved absolutely impossible to get it to meet, so we've always proceeded rather informally, usually deciding over drinks at one conference where the next one is going to be, and then announcing it at the dinner, having done a bit of homework beforehand to find out who would be willing to do it. It all began, Daffith Jenkins was the founder, really, and it turned out we both had the same idea at about the same time, and he wrote to me, after attending the Edinburgh SPTL conference, which we've both been at, saying, don't you think we ought to have a, a legal history conference? And I, I'd been thinking the same thing, so I thought, yes, that's a good idea. And he just took the idea up and arranged it to happen at Aberystwyth, where he was. And that was a great success. We had about 50 people came to it, and everyone said, must carry on, appoint a continuation committee to make sure it does. And then the next residential one was in Cambridge in 1975. We had hoped to do them every two years, but we didn't get our act together, and so we had a one-day conference in between 74 and Lincoln's Inn. But since 1975, we have kept them up every two years ever since. But the organisation is done by the host university, so once they've been chosen, it's up to them, really, and there is no overarching body that tells them what to do. There is a fund that can help them a bit, sort of float, but otherwise it's up to them. And it's been a great success. We now have hundreds of people on our books. So the last conference was... The next conference will be in London. Always a nice venue. We've only met in London once before, because we think people might quite like to see other places. And we've been to Scotland several times, and we've been to Ireland once as well. Dublin didn't quite count as British, but we... Sort of being historians, got it in on a historical basis. <laughs> on that footing, we might go to Normandy, perhaps. Well, you are a member of the Ely Diocesan Board of Finance Trust Committee. Well, you were from 1988 to 94. I think you mentioned earlier that you don't have religious affiliation, so I'm assuming this was a purely legal role. Yeah, again, it was Peter Stein, I think, who pushed me into that uh, to succeed him. He'd been doing it, and he took the view that it was a duty of the law faculties to support the diocese. And the work, as I recall, was mostly about disused village schools. So it was purely legal, yes. Yes. Also, you have been a member of the International Advisory Board for the Centre for the Study of Modern Constitutionalism, Institute of the United States, 
uh, from 96 to 2003. And I wonder if you could say anything about the work of this body. I don't remember it ever meeting. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe I just wasn't invited. Professor <laughs> <laughs> Baker, you have been a member of many learned bodies, including the uh, Fellow of the Royal Historical Society, the obviously the American Society for Legal History, also the Harleian Society, and I wonder if you could tell us something about that. The Harleian Society? Yes. Uh, that, that publishes work relating to heraldry, so that ties in with my amateur interest in heraldry, which goes back to that exhibition in Chelmsford, yes. Coronation Year. And I now own quite a few heraldic manuscripts and objects, so it has become quite a serious hobby. Yes. But it also was valuable in, in producing my legal prosopography because I had to do a lot of work tracing family histories for that. From the list that you gave me, do any of these memberships stand out or worth, or worth a mention? Well, most of them, in fact all of them, one joins in order to get the journal. Um, that's really the only reason. Are you still an active member of most of these? Yes, I think so, apart from the American Law Institute, which somebody told me I ought to belong to since I was going to America quite a lot, but I never actually had anything to do with them. <laughs> and since the subscription was quite heavy, I discontinued that one. In the comprehensive CV that you very kindly sent me, you had a section listing various consultancies that you've undertaken. And I suspect that they mostly deal with the intricacies of charters and clarification of historical relationships that are now obscure. Do any stand out as particularly significant from a legal point of view? Well, most of you're quite right. Most of them are about charters, and usually they're insoluble problems which result from the Crown granting the same thing twice or making a mistake in draftsmanship or something. And Legal history isn't a great deal of help, except that you can put things in context. The only one that did potentially raise interesting legal questions is one that I've just written up recently for the tax uh, history conference that's held here, which involved the stanneries in Cornwall. And it ar arose when somebody from the Department of Trade and Industry, as it then was, rang me up and said, would you be able to help us translate a line of Latin in a charter? So I said, well, have a go, send it to me. The next I knew, I was attended in my college rooms by seven solicitors, four from the DTI and three from the Treasury solicitor, and they were spread out rolls on the floor and so forth. And because a, a chap in Cornwall had hit on a brilliant wheeze, he discovered that uh, the Cornish stanneries had something called a parliament, and he jumped to the conclusion that that means a sovereign legislative body, which of course it wasn't. And um, he had some support from Professor Pennington from Company Law, who said that this Parliament had sweeping powers. Anyway, he was selling shares in a completely bogus tin mining company on the footing that if you bought one of these shares, you became a tinner, and you didn't have to pay your poll tax. This is a tax just introduced by Mrs Thatcher. Um, because it hadn't been approved by the Stannery Parliament. And this got the DTI terribly worried, so they were trying to close him down, stop him trading. 
And I discovered then that if you want to stop a government department in its tracks for at least a year, just cite anything in Latin and it'll do the trick. <laughs> you won't necessarily win eventually, but you can certainly hold them up. But that raised really quite interesting questions about whether letters patent, which is what they were relying on, ever could prevail against parliamentary taxation. And the obvious answer to a modern lawyer is, of course, it can't, because Parliament is higher than the government. But actually, there was quite a bit of authority for saying that because taxation was payable to the Crown, the Crown could waive it in advance, just as it can waive it afterwards by a deal with the Inland Revenue. It can grant you an exemption from paying taxes in the future. And some of the current tax legislation actually has... Uh, a section, usually towards the end, saying that no charter of exemption from taxation shall be pleaded against this tax. So clearly the draftsman thought that these charters were... Well, that wasn't argued in this case at all, but I foresaw it coming, and I wrote a, a paper for the DTI on the dispensing power of the Crown. I don't think many lawyers have done that since the 17th century. I'm trying to deal with lots of points that could have been argued but weren't. <laughs> so it was a potentially interesting case, but... Um, because he didn't get legal aid, the person in question conducted the case himself rather badly, making absurd claims about Cornwall being a, a separate state and so forth, and he didn't get very far in the Chantry Division. <laughs> but he, he made more than enough money, he probably made at least a million pounds selling these shares, and more than enough to pay his poll tax, I think. His tin mine was completely imaginary, but it was a veritable gold mine. <laughs> Well, that is a fascinating account, Professor Baker. Um, there was another case that involved the status of Breku in relation to Sark, and um, I wondered uh, whether, whether, this, whether this was part of the Barclay Brothers case. Yes, it was. It didn't get very far. It was potentially very interesting, and um, I can't remember what happened in the end. It was settled, I think. But, but it raised quite serious questions about feudal tenure, really, and who, who owned what. It wasn't clear whether Breku was part of Sark or somehow attached to it or an independent country or what. Yes. And um, there, there were one or two medieval records, but it was, I mean, it's such a small island that no one lived on it for really until the Barclay brothers built there, I think. So you get a sighting about every hundred years that someone's put some sheep to graze there, and it's quite difficult to make a legal argument out of such... Uh, curious materials that I uh, say I started on that but it didn't get very far in the end. One that went on for a very long time was a dispute about mineral rights in North Wales in which Michael Pritchard was on the other side and they brought me in originally to explain an opinion written by John Barton of Merton College Oxford who was uh, quite a distinguished legal historian but wrote sometimes in a rather unusual style which tended to leave out every other sentence and so it's quite difficult to follow his <laughs> line of thought and I ended up um, giving advice over quite a long time and I had to dig up lots of material in the record office. Fortunately we had a client who didn't seem to worry about the expense and he would come to the conferences himself and he would be quite delighted every time I produced a new piece of information although it tended to be three paces forward two backwards one week and then two forward and three backward the next week and it just got more and more complicated. It was truly Dickensian kind of chancery litigation. 
In fact, the first conference I went to in Lincoln's Inn, they produced an opinion written by Randall Palmer, who, who became Lord Chancellor to Queen Victoria. In this very case, the same family on the other side, which I didn't agree with, actually. But in the course of my research, I found that there had actually been a case in the course of Exchequer, I think, in the 17th century, on exactly the same issue with the same family. And it never been decided, and it still hasn't been. <laughs> As I think everyone concerned, including the Crown, has now settled. So it never will be decided. And we spent ages on that, and we just couldn't make head or tail of the <laughs> documents because the, the roots of title just didn't work. And, um, I noticed that three of these consultancies related to the United States. And I wondered how that came about. There was one in, called the Shenandoah Courthouse case, and then two of the relating to the uh, to Guantanamo Bay. Oh yes, well, there, my involvement there was pretty minimal. I didn't write the Guantanamo Bay brief. There was a legal history brief explaining the historical background in England of habeas corpus. And I was sent it and asked if I'd be willing to put my name to it, and it was actually very good history written by a friend of mine. So I did sign it. And it, it turned out that my name came first alphabetically, so they were referring to it as the Baker Brief. <laughs> but it, I just put my name to it, that's all. Right. Couldn't even add anything, it was so thoroughly done. There was one South African consultancy. Oh, that was again very minor, about the history of King's Council and the analogy with senior council in South Africa. Right. Well, Professor Baker, if, if, unless you have anything more to add to your very intriguing involvement with these various consultancies, I think this brings us to the final section, which is the highlights of your career. And I wonder if, looking back on what has been a hugely illustrious and a very full career, you can pick out the main trends and possible particular crossroads and critical decisions that you took. Well, I think you know, academically I've had a pretty uneventful life following a rather long rut. Um, and it, it largely a matter of serendipity, I think, that if you just keep looking at manuscripts every so often you hit something that's rather interesting and that sparks off another article or a project. But I haven't taken any radical crossroad decisions that I can recall offhand, just gone on doing the same sort of thing. And I've been very fortunate to have a career in which I was able to do that, with nobody breathing down my neck and telling me what I should be doing. Pursuing your hobby, as it were. Yes, absolutely. I just loved every minute of it. Can you say that you've achieved the special goals that you set yourself? I don't have any, really. <laughs> um, it's a very self-indulgent profession that we have, as far as the research is concerned. We all do it because we like doing it. And, um, of course, the research can be more fun than actually writing it up, which can sometimes be a bit of a drudge. But I took the view that since I've been paid public money to do what I like doing, I do have a bit of responsibility to publish what I've come up with. Uh, so I did feel something of a sense of duty, being in a privileged position that one should go on publishing even if no one reads it. Yes. And um, so you were driven mainly by your, your love of the subject matter. Yes. And do you still have enthusiasm for any goals that you feel you might still achieve? 
Well, they start becoming more modest as you get older. I mean, some of the projects like the Oxford History took almost 20 years of collecting bits and pieces, and the prosopography was also about 20 years, just putting things into boxes until there was enough. I can't, obviously, uh, think in those terms anymore, so present goal is just to finish the next piece of work and then perhaps move on to something else. Well, Professor Baker, I think that brings us to the conclusion and all that remains is for me to thank you for yet another truly fascinating account, which I'm extremely grateful to you for providing. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.